1: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Each episode, I discuss simple and scientific ways to help you improve your mood, mind and mental health. In this episode, I interview holistic child psychologist and behavior specialist, Dr. Nicole Birkins on how we can help improve our children's attention, anxiety, mood and behavior Dr. Nicole also shares some holistic ways to help children with autism, ADD and ADHD, and learning disabilities. We discuss the role nutrition plays in managing and treating neurodevelopment, what foods and activities are essential for optimal brain development, how to deal with parent guilt, and so much more. If you enjoy listening to my podcast, I would love for you to take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you listen. And keep sharing what you've learned and loved on social media with friends and family. Sharing is caring, and I am sure you know someone in your life who could benefit from a little help cleaning up their mental mess. Now, on to today's episode. Dr. Nicole Birkins, what an honor to have you in the studio with me today. I'm really, really excited to interview you, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. It's going to be a very interesting and important conversation. So Nicole, before we start, can you just tell my audience a little bit about who you are, what you do and what motivates you and tell us something that's not in your bio, something, you know, we always like to know the little inside stories. I love it. That's great.
0: Well, I am a practicing clinical
1: child psychologist
0: and nutrition specialist. So currently I have a private practice with a team where we specialize in evaluation and treatment of children through young adults who have a wide range of neurodevelopmental and mental health kinds of challenges. And we do that in a holistic way, merging things from the areas of functional medicine and nutrition, psychology, child development, education, all of those pieces. So that is my day job right now. And then I also do a lot of speaking and teaching particular people in the medical and the education fields of how to best support children with these kinds of needs in school and medical settings. I started out my career as a special education teacher, so I've had a winding path to get here. I did not do the typical, you know, knew right what I was going to do when I entered college and went from there, but I actually think that's been really wonderful because the journey of starting out as a teacher in the world of education gave me a real appreciation for children's needs in those settings and the challenges of that. And the challenges that educators are up against with, you know, making all of that work and then doing a lot of consultation and direct work with families and then going on to psychology and then going on to nutrition really as adding these pieces along the way to meet the needs of kids that I saw were unmet. So that's been sort of the winding path of my career. On the personal side, I am a mom to four children. And I think that's important for people to know because it's easy for professionals to tell parents what to do. And it's another thing to understand what it's like to actually have to do those things. So I think it's important for people to know that I do have four kids. They are 13, 16, 18, and 20 currently. So yes, that is a lot of teenagerness to have in the home all at once. So that maybe is something that don't necessarily know about me, along with in my childhood, spent a lot of time overseas and in different places besides the US. And that really adds to my just sort of appreciation for diversity and inclusion of all different cultures and
1: and people and all of that. So in a nutshell, that's that's me. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, I'm also a mom of four, so I can relate. Mine are all in their 20s, between 20 and thirty. So when you're a mom, you have a whole different perspective as well. Yeah. And, and I love that you have traveled and you've lived in other countries. So that broad perspective is incredibly important. You yeah. Now, you talk about being a holistic psychologist, and that really yeah. appeals to me because of just the work I did for 30, 25 years i practice and also practice a very holistic approach. And so I always get excited when I hear people have that same approach. So talk talk to us about what this means.
0: Yeah, so to me, being a holistic child psychologist is really about looking beyond just the symptoms or the problems that a child is having and looking at the big picture of why is the child struggling with these things and not just looking at it through the lens of the mind or through a psychological lens or even a child development lens, although those are important, but looking beyond that to include physiological health, to include aspects of neurological health and brain development, to look at the family system, to look at what's going on educationally for the child, to look at all of those pieces to get really a a holistic view of who this child is, what's going on in the world around them, in their brain, in their body, and then creating a plan to help them achieve their optimal potential because, unfortunately, what typically happens in the field of mental health or you know in child psychology is a parent brings a child in and maybe they're having symptoms of you know struggling to pay attention in school or they're hyperactive or they're having behavior issues or they're anxious or wherever whatever it may be and typically in the field of child psychology we look at that and we say okay these are the symptoms here's the diagnosis that we give that and then we do maybe some coping skills treatment or a little bit of parent training or you know play based therapy very psychologically based approaches and there's nothing wrong with those approaches but what i was finding throughout my work with children and families is those are not nearly enough and even when we get some improvement we're not getting the whole picture. We're not substantially moving the child forward who maybe address one issue and then there's still this other piece. And so that got me really curious about what, what are the underlying pieces here? Because just giving a child a diagnosis of let's say ADHD, that doesn't tell us anything about why they're having these problems. All those labels do is say, here's the list of criteria. Here's the list of problems they're having. Well, As the moms and dads listening know, you can come in and tell us that. You don't need us to say to you, here's the list of problems your child is having. You know that. And us just giving that a label doesn't do anything to resolve the actual issue. And so I got curious about this as I was seeing children either not make progress or I was seeing them plateau or maybe we were making improvement on things like their anxiety or their learning but they were still having a lot of you know physiological issues and that's really what got me interested in looking at the body and the brain connection and looking at the fields of functional medicine functional nutrition how do those pieces play a role and to me no one of these things holds all the answers for a child or an adult who's having challenges. We need to look at all of these pieces to understand why children are having challenges. And then more importantly, what we need to do to help improve things for them. Because if we're not identifying what the underlying issues are, how can we put together a treatment plan that's going to be appropriate? I can have 10 children come into my practice this week all with the same diagnostic label of, let's say, ADHD. And the underlying issues for them might all be very different. And so the treatment plan and the approach that we take is going to need to be different. So to me, that's really, when I use the term holistic child psychologist, that's what I'm referring to this looking at all of the pieces, getting an understanding of the whole child and then creating a plan that specifically addresses what their needs are.
1: Mm, You explained that beautifully. And I love that. You know, when I was practicing and training 30 years ago, and I worked for 25 years in the field, I watched how things changed. And I don't know if you saw this happening as well while you've been practicing, but how in the beginning, it all started off with a team. It was always the team and it was always looking. We didn't look at the label even. And I remember even at university when they started talking about ADD and ADHD in in the 80s, mid 80s, when the shift occurred from the more holistic approach to the symptomatic mm-hmm. approach in the biomedical model. And I remember one of our professors saying, this is the most terrible thing that's happening and watch in 30 years time, the problems that this is going to create. I will never forget that professor saying that to me. And here we okay. are sitting 30 years later and we're sitting with a crisis on our hands of a multitude of kids being labeled with a, with a, something that actually is not even a scientific entity. And you have to get back to a holistic approach where you describe the whole child. So I love that you have taken on that approach and that it's it's not just that we can't look at the symptom, you have to look at the underlying cause all the time and all the pieces. I don't know if you found this but even in the early days, we would talk about in our first early days of practice, we would always advise on, on diet and exercise right. we would always look at those pieces, we would, we would have the whole team, no one person made the decision. Now it's the psychiatrist labelling and making the decision right. and then putting them into an IEP or some sort of a plan that is a specialised plan and that's not appropriate, that's just a cookie cutter approach and it's really, it hasn't Work. We've gone backwards. If you look at the statistics, it's gone backwards. I, okay. It hasn't gone forward. So I'm so thankful for people like you that are challenging the system and trying to change it because it's not working.
0: Well, you're exactly right. And the statistics bear that out. I mean, we've had, we've seen over the last 25 years, more and more children diagnosed with more and more of these conditions. And yet we're not seeing that the standard treatment approaches are having a very good effect. In fact, when they do studies looking at that, they say, well, it's a real problem that not everyone has access to treatment, but even the children who do have access to the standard are not doing very well. That's exactly. Right. Exactly. And what does the research shows patients, that they're doing, yeah. Many of them are getting worse. And unfortunately, in the United States, and I think this has happened in some other countries abroad as well, but it's particularly a problem here in the U.S., This psychiatric model of we give you a label and then that label corresponds to certain pills that we give you, and then that supposedly is a solution to the problem. Look, I mean, if that worked, I think we'd all be supportive of that. But here's the problem the data shows that that does not work. There is no pill for each of these conditions. And unfortunately, I think this is really challenging for parents who come into the mental health system with a child who has these issues and their experience is with the typical medical system where you bring your child in, your child has, you know, maybe these certain physical symptoms and they run some lab tests and they say, oh, this is what your child has. And this is the treatment for it. They assume coming into the mental health system that that's the same way that it is. And it is not, we do not have definitive tests for any of these labels or names that we give these things. And yet a lot of practitioners act like, we do have scientific validation for these. And like, if we give you this label, then this is the treatment for it. And parents are very discouraged to discover over time that the labeling and the treatment that was done actually hasn't substantially helped their child. And that is very discouraging and very problematic. And we need to be doing a much better job, I believe, in the fields of the medical system and the mental health system in particular, of really taking a look at what's going on with these individual children and what needs to happen and move beyond this model that's not working, where you have these symptoms, we give you a label, we give you some kind of psychological therapy and a pill, and we send you on your way. It's not working.
1: Before we continue today's episode, I want to tell you about a new hair care brand I just started using and absolutely love. Function of Beauty is hair care that is formulated specifically for you. No matter your hair type, they create shampoo, conditioner and treatments to fit your unique needs. How unique, you ask? Function of Beauty has over 54 trillion possible ingredient combinations to make sure your formula is as unique as you. Here's how it works. First, you take a quick but thorough quiz and tell them a little about your hair. Next, Function of Beauty's team determines the right blend of ingredients then bottle your custom formula to order. Then they deliver your personalized formula right to your door in a cute customized bottle with your favorite color and fragrance. They even print your name on it. Plus, their formulas are vegan and cruelty free. They never use sulfates, parabens or any other harmful ingredients. Function of Beauty is not just the first ever custom hair care brand. It is the internet's top-rated customized hair care brand with over 40,000 real five-star reviews and counting. So, what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash drleaf to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com forward slash for 20% off and to let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com forward slash it's not working. And I just want to thank you for saying that because my audience has heard me say this so many times and yeah. you're so eloquent in how you've explained that. And you've reinforced the point that I make so often. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to stress the seriousness and undergird what Dr. Nicole has just said. This is vital that we don't just think that there's a pull quick fix for a label and we've got to stop labeling our, our children. And that just the mere fact that that they've been put under, that mental health has been put under the biomedical model is a major problem. And you've yes. referenced that. And, and I've spe- I speak a lot about this to my audience. So you can be free to carry on down this track that you've right. started because this is what people need to hear and what they want to hear and they want solutions because they are tired of the medications. You know, Nicole, there was a case just recently of someone that I know quite well who's got a child who's eight years old, and this child has been put on Prozac and Ritalin. And this child was so aggressive and not any better, but I mean like badly aggressive, like terrible. And what this child needed was us: look, you've got to wean them off these drugs, you've got to get them off the drugs because because. because that's the problem a huge part of the problem and then you get to the cause but you can't because the the drugs are clouding the way the child's functioning you know just reining off the adrenaline was quite a it's it's very difficult to come off these drugs but once you are the change in the child was dramatic and now it's a process of getting them off the Prozac but an 8 year old these drugs are changing the brain these drugs are damaging the brain they're not and your brain can heal because it's neuroplastic so once and I've shown this with my clinical trials and my research that once you, you you use your mind correctly and do all the holistic things that you're talking about your brain Can rewire. And that's a message that is also not told to people enough. People think once your brain's damaged, that's it. That's not the case. Your mind changes your brain. So as your mind heals, your brain heals. But the fact of the matter is we should not be drugging an eight-year-old with drugs that aren't even safe for anyone. You know, we should be, as you say, taking that holistic approach and looking at all the reasons why in the first place.
0: Well, and and the problem is that parents are given these prescriptions the vast majority of the time without being provided the opportunity to have true informed consent, which requires that the prescriber has fully talked with them about what the research shows or doesn't show, what the potential benefits, but also the potential risks and problems. So many parents come into my practice and they say, if I had known at the start of this, what the potential was for the problems, or even just that my child wasn't going to get better, I never would have done this. Because in my experience, the vast majority of parents, they don't want to give their child prescription. They do it because it's the only option they're provided or because they're told, this is what you need to do. And we all want to be good parents, right? And so if the doctor says to us, this is what you need to do, we're going to do that. But my... Part of my mission is to educate parents around, you're not being told the whole story. And to get to the piece that you talked about with the safety component of that, we don't even know if the majority of these are safe for children because we've never tested it. The majority of these psychiatric drugs are used off-label in children. They may or may not be approved for psychiatric problems in adults, and then prescribers are left to determine for themselves what they think appropriate dosing may be for a child because the studies for the vast majority of these medications are not there. Most parents are lured to find this out. You mean this Prozac I'm giving my eight-year-old hasn't had thorough safety and effectiveness studies for children. No, not even done.
1: not even for adults, even that's for right. adults, the, right. the, it's been shown that the side effects are not worth the, right. the slight gain on placebo. So it's not even it's not even that's safe right. for an adult. And as you say, the, I love what you said there. Thank you for saying that, because the fact that people, that they should be given full discussion around what these drugs are and all the studies, a parent would never choose that. You would never put your child on something that's a pure risk. And the story that we have neurobiological correlates for ADD and ADHD and that this this is the, the problem. We don't have that knowledge, no, and it's no. never been in billions of dollars. Years and billions of dollars later, this has not been shown to be truth. It's really a myth, and it's yes, learning disabilities aren't. Learning disabilities exist, but this label where they become this this it. And that mm-hmm. there's something wrong with your brain. That's not it. There's a combination of factors around why a child has a learning disability for some whatever reason. And it's mixed in with the emotional. It's mixed in with the diet. I mean, look at how diets have changed. We, we saw right. it an, as the modern American diet increased, so we saw an increase in concentration. I mean, just the modern American diet literally puts duck chewing gum in your brain. I mean, for want of a very simple explanation. <laughs> Parents aren't, in, you know, aren't being told this. No. They've been, no. they, they, the authoritarian, patriarchal medical system that says, I want the white coat, I'm the, authori-, you know, mm-hmm. the authority, male and female, Has made, p- parents are scared mm-hmm. to question. And Nicole, one more thing, I don't know if you've seen this as well, is so many parents have said to me, but my child, I was told if I don't put my child on this drug, they're going to be taken away from me or mm-hmm. they're going to be kicked out of the school. Now, when mm-hmm. that happens, that's just terrible. Right.
0: Right. And, it, and that does happen, unfortunately, in some cases, and especially where I think parents feel the pressure of it is with school. You know, teachers and school administrators saying, you know, you, you, this is what you need to do. You need to go get a label of ADHD. Your child needs medication, which, by the way, if you are in the United States, is not legal for them to do, but that doesn't mean they don't do it. And parents feel very pressured
1: you know, oh, my say that again, Nicole, say yeah. that again, say that yeah. again,
0: that that it's illegal for schools to tell a parent that you have to go get this label, you have to put your child on medication, they cannot do that, at least not in the public school system. And yet that happens all the time where parents feel very pressured that they have to go to their doctor's office, they have to get this, they have to give this because otherwise, you know, their child is not going to be accepted at school, their child's going to continue to be suspended or even expelled you know, and so parents feel tremendous amount of pressure. And yet, when we look at some of the school dynamics that play into creating these problems for children, particularly when we look at the areas of ADD, ADHD, behavior disorders, learning disabilities, what do we see there? What we see is that as our schools have become less and less developmentally aligned or developmentally appropriate in their practices, meaning children are starting full-time school earlier and earlier. Academics are pushed at ages three, four, five now. As a teacher, when I was learning how to teach, what we were doing in second grade is now what's done in kindergarten. Those are developmentally inappropriate practices. And as we have shifted towards those, what have we found? we have found that more and more young children are now being diagnosed, particularly boys, particularly boys who are younger in their class, they're being diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and other behavioral disorders at higher rates. Why is that? A big part of it is because we are taking a child who developmentally should not be expected to sit for long periods of time, to be learning to read, to be doing these things. And we're putting them in an environment that's not appropriate for them. They aren't able to successfully do it. And then we're blaming it on them. And we're saying, because you have a problem. This is because you have ADD. No, it's because we are putting them in an environment that is developmentally inappropriate. And so there's so many pieces to this. This is why just filling out a checklist at your pediatrician for five minutes And saying the teacher's concerned and here's the checklist and them leaving with a prescription for Ritalin, this doesn't even begin to address what the problems are.
1: Gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I spent years working in South Africa and in this country in schools and in the different, various different school systems and trained thousands of teachers. And one of the first things that I would do would be to, because they they would call me in to try and deal with all these issues, would be to go and address the system and say, listen, you can't get a child doing math at 7.45 in the morning when their cortisol levels haven't even risen yet properly until around about nine o'clock. They're not even able to focus. So you're obviously, they're going to wiggle around. You don't give them, you're not doing enough exercise during the course of the day. They're not getting fresh air." are they getting fed food that is just totally blocking of you've got to address those components and and in the schools where i actually did studies where we actually did that the changes were dramatic but to keep to sustain the changes is another story because of the whole system so it's a systemic thing like we see with so many things going on in america at the moment the systems have to change you know it's it's a bigger picture but it's so easy just to label but the yeah. pace, it catches up. You know, now we are in that, honestly, that professor that I mentioned in the beginning predicted a, the crash that we're seeing. And we're seeing it in our kids. We're seeing it in our systems. We're seeing it across the board. And these kids are growing up to be adults with all rare. this damage in their brain from these drugs, which can heal. I wanted to stress that you can, your brain can heal right. because it's neuroplastic. So, so, here, so here we've identified the problem. Let's start moving towards some, and I know we can't solve the world's problems now. And you have a lot of resources and there's many different things. But what advice would you give to a parent who is sitting now, because I know people are listening and they're saying, okay, that's me. I've got a child like that. I'm stuck in the system. I was forced to label my child's on a drug. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think first of all, it's important for parents to give themselves some grace around the fact that we all as parents do the best we can at any moment in time with the information that we have. So regardless of what decisions you've made or not made or whatever, to this point, you've done it with your child's best interests in mind, and, and you've done it based on the information you've been given. When we know better or different, we can do something differently, right? So I don't want anyone feeling guilty or you know, upset with themselves. But it is important, whether your child is or is not on medication, It's important to look at these underlying pieces and get some of what I call the foundations in place. So to look at nutrition as a big piece of this, because what we put in our child's bodies makes a huge difference in how their brain functions. If you put junk food in your child's body all day, sugar-filled, chemical-filled, poor nutrient quality food, what you're going to get is junk behavior and junk learning on the other end. That's just a fact. The research is very clear
1: Yeah, on There's that. lots of research on that's that. Right. Yeah,
0: That's right. So we need to be mindful about how we're feeding our children. And that, that's one piece of this. And we can come back to some specifics on that if we'd like. Another piece is sleep. Many of these children are not sleeping well. In fact, their studies have shown that up to 40% of children diagnosed with ADD and ADHD actually have an undiagnosed and untreated sleep disorder. That when we resolve the sleep and get them sleeping well, suddenly they don't have symptoms anymore. That's how profoundly important good quality and enough sleep is for children and their brain development. So we have to address the sleep piece. We need to address the movement piece, as you alluded to in the school environment. Children are more sedentary than ever before in history. And children, especially young children through the elementary years, movement, physical movement drives brain development. So when children are passively sitting in front of devices or sitting at desks when they're not actively moving their bodies, that has a very negative impact on brain development and on these symptoms. So that's another piece. And the screens, screen time and addressing that and the addictive quality of that. And ensuring that your child is not out of balance with spending way too much time on screens and then not enough time doing the other kinds of life things that they need to do to develop and to grow as a person, as a human being. So, we've got the screens, we've got the stressors, we've got family stressors that sometimes need to be addressed, we've got trauma, all kinds of different traumas. And people say, oh, children don't have trauma. Many children. Have many different kinds of traumas. And so, looking at those pieces, at, at stressors at school. How stressful is the school environment? Is the child being bullied? Are there peer stressors? What are the stressors in this child's life? And how can we address those? And then also the relationship piece. What's the parent child relationship like? What, what relationships does the child have? that support their development that support their emotional and behavioral regulation. So, these are really the foundations that we need to look at whether a child comes into my practice and they're not on medication, they're doing other treatments, they're not or they are on medication, it really doesn't matter. We need to come back to these pieces and get some good strong foundations built in these areas and then we can move forward if there are other specialized things that are needed or if the family would like to look at getting the child off of medication and, you know, maybe some other things that can, that can be done, then, then we can do that. But we've got to understand the fundamental role that these areas play in what's going on with children. We've got to be willing to really look
1: at those and take some steps in those areas. Mm, that's brilliant. I love that. This episode is brought to you in part by International Justice Mission. For more than 20 years, International Justice Mission has worked to end slavery and violence around the world and create more just communities where people aren't trafficked or abused in the first place. And an important part of this work is to provide trauma-informed therapy and care to people who have experienced this type of abuse. People like Ruby, who is from the Philippines. Ruby was 15 years old when her parents died. Shortly after, she was offered a job at an internet cafe across the country, but as soon as she arrived, she knew she had been tricked. Instead of working at an internet cafe, Ruby was sexually exploited over webcams to predators around the world. In an IJM undercover operation, Ruby was rescued and brought to safety, but that was only the beginning of her journey to freedom. Four years after her rescue, International Justice Mission supporters have walked with Ruby to make sure she has everything she needs to journey towards healing, especially trauma-focused therapy. Today, Ruby is safe because of the healing she received. She was able to start dreaming of her future again. She graduated from college and is considering pursuing a law degree next. Trauma-focused therapy is critical to help survivors move forward and heal. You can make this healing possible by providing an hour of therapy for a child like Ruby. For just $45, you can provide trauma-informed therapy that will change a child's life. Head to ijm.org forward slash and help vulnerable children heal by giving the gift of therapy today. That's ijm.org forward slash The link and more details will be in the show notes. Maybe what we can do is just touch on a couple of examples on each of those areas. And I'm just, I get so excited. I want to jump around because this is what I used to tell all my parents. And at the top of the prescription, I would say, read, 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 because that's another element. They don't, you know, kids, you've seen the decline in the statistics of children not reading as well with the current system. You know, if you're not stimulating all those other areas, you've, people don't, you've got to read. My kids were taught to, they they just, they always have a book with them. Reading is just a lifestyle. So those are very major elements too. But that's brilliant. What you've just said is, and they're such bad, and those are things. Things that a parent can address almost immediately—you know, these are—that's like a checklist yeah. that you can actually start looking at. Right. Oh, how can I change my child's diet? How can I introduce more exercise and that kind of thing? So, would you mind, Nicole, just maybe just touch on each of those with one or two tips to give parents a sure. start point to that's start right. diving in?
0: Wonderful. And you know, there's many resources on my website to help families approach these too. But let, let me give you some starting points. So, in nutrition looking at some basic things as starting points with replacing sugary beverages with water. If you are soda pop drinkers, your child drinks a lot of fruit juice, sugary sports drinks, and and we're not just talking about sugar and high fructose corn syrup, we're also talking about artificial sweeteners that are in things. These are neurotoxins for the brain. So, we need to be looking at getting more water hydration. Hydration is essential for brain development, for learning, for emotional and behavioral regulation. So, just things as basic as making sure your child's drinking enough water and reducing sugar in the diet. We know that that has a negative impact on all kids, on their ability to regulate themselves, on their blood sugar levels, which then determine their mood, their behavior, their anxiety, all of those things. So looking to reduce sugar and a lot of those packaged, chemical-filled foods and replacing them with more nutrient-dense foods. Kids need to be eating more fruits and vegetables. You know, We all sort of know this, but we think about it in terms of physical health. And what I want parents to start to understand mind, is brain, mind and brain that's health. right. Eating more fruits and vegetables, eating lean proteins, eating whole grains. These are not just about weight and about physical health. This is about brain development and brain function for our children. So, all of those things that we know we should be doing for ourselves, those are things we need to be doing for our kids too in the nutrition realm. And of course, then there are lots of targeted nutrient therapies and things which we won't get into here, but I do want your parents listening to know that these are good research-based effective options. We can use targeted nutrient supplement protocols, targeted amino acids, specific kinds of specialized diets for children who need them that can make a profound difference. So again, those are more advanced things that you work with a practitioner on, but to just know that those
1: options exist and are valid and that you can find people to help you with those. That's brilliant. I wanna just add to the food thing, what you've given these absolutely essential advice. And I have—I wrote a book called Think and Eat Yourself Smart and there's a whole section in there where I explain about a lot of my audience are familiar with this, but the impact of sugar on the brain and what it does and how it actually literally kills brain cells, and you know, you can rebuild them again, but you have to that, so and it, also that the effect of sugar, like just pure sugar. I mean, you know this, it's like taking giving your you know cocaine in your brain, you're not going to give your child cocaine. So, you know, giving your child a junk food cookie is actually you you it's mm-hmm. actually safe if you look at the addiction, the seven top addictions. Cocaine is less addictive than the modern American diet. The modern American diet's number two, and cocaine is number seven. Mm. So if you can just considering that, yeah. and it's more difficult to withdraw from the modern American American diet than it is to withdraw from cocaine. I mean, those are just reference points because we think cocaine, we would never give our child cocaine, right, but we give right. our child the modern American diet. So I try and tell people the modern American diet is actually worse than cocaine mm-hmm. and you're not going to give your child cocaine. You know, so just that kind of is a reference point, this is like, it, it's it's so important what you're saying. We can't just, oh, that's just for, it's fundamental. It's what it, diet is absolutely essential for brain development. So thank you yeah. for stressing that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly coming off of sugar is one of the hardest things that many adults do. And so it can be a not very pleasant process. You can do it gradually with your kids. And that's not to say they can't ever have sugar, but it does mean prioritizing that the bulk of what your child is eating is good, nutrient dense food that fuels them. And you minimize these other things because, you know, they're not supportive. So, that's the nutrition piece. And I think with the sleep piece, it's important if your child is having some sleep issues to get those addressed, to raise those with your child's health care provider. Some of the signs, some people say, oh, I think my child sleeps great. And then I start asking more questions about it. It's like, no, this child's not sleeping well. So here's some of the signs, just so parents are aware, of things you want to address or look into if these are happening. Your children has trouble settling down at night, takes a long time to fall asleep. That's a problem. If they're waking up quite often in the night, even if it's, you know, sleepwalking, sleep talking, getting up a lot to use the bathroom, needing a snack, you know, any of those kinds of things, that's a problem. If they are very restless in their sleep. You know these children because their covers are all over the place in the morning. They're flipped to the other side of the bed or when you go maybe on vacation or something and you share a bed. Nobody wants to share a bed with the child because he's kicking everyone in the night or you hear him. You know, banging against the wall in his room. These are signs of restless sleep when children are doing that. Some of them will complain about feeling restless, restless legs, feeling you know, kind of prickly, but many of them, they don't know even that it's happening, so they don't report it. So we need to be mindful and watching for it because that kind of restless sleep means a child is not getting the quality restorative sleep they need. If your child is snoring, that is a problem um, outside of having a cold or something like that. If your child seems to suddenly gasp for air or take, you know, stop breathing and take a sudden breath, that's a problem. So any of these things, if your child is very difficult to wake in the morning, particularly young children through elementary age children, they should not have great difficulty waking up and getting going in the morning. Teens, that's a different situation. But our younger children, if you're really having a hard time Rousing your child, they're very grumpy, very fatigued, very tired all morning long. That is an indicator that they're not getting good sleep. So, if any of those things are going on, you need to raise those with the providers. You need to look at how to address that. So, you know that that's for the so sleep. Good. Yeah. And then I think for movement, movement and screen time to me fit together because a lot of why children are not moving these days is because they are spending an excessive amount of time on screen time or on devices. So we want to make sure kids are getting good physical activity every day. Essential, essential. And that means putting down the devices and going out to play. Or when the weather is bad, inside, building forts, wrestling, jumping on the trampoline inside, doing obstacle courses in the basement, getting outside, riding the bike, playing outdoors, going for family walks. All of these things are really, really important. And so I I encourage parents as a starting point to look at the day or look at the week and see, is my child getting good periods of physical play and activity throughout the week or not? And if not, or you say, well, a little bit, but not much, look at how you can build that in each day. And then that goes along with minimizing the electronics, setting some limits on these are things that we're going to prioritize before we do screen time. You know, Have you helped out with your things around the house? Have you gotten some time outdoors, gotten some physical activity? have you done something with friends? Have you done all these other things that we prioritize as important? If so, then you can have some screen time, but we're not going to prioritize screens as sort of the default mode. And then, oh, by the way, you should also, you know, go out and ride your bike. So, so that movement piece is, is critical. So those are some pieces, I think, to get parents started.
1: That's really good. Yeah. And in terms also of just if a child has is showing a learning problem, it's really important to not just think it's always drug related. I just wanted to stress that too, that that there's a symptom with the drug, as you've mentioned, but to think maybe your child just needs you to sit down and help them learn how to learn. And I find that massive. I would train parents to help a child with their learning, sit down and help them with their homework. Because so many times a child just doesn't know how to learn. And then if they don't, which most people don't, you've actually got to teach someone how to go through the actual process of learning. And that's a huge area that's not addressed effectively. So I just wanted to also mention that. Let's talk, that's Really great. Thank you, Nicole. Let's talk a little bit about autism. That's you also work in that area. And that's a lot of we get a lot of questions. I'd love your take on autism and some advice that you could give for parents and guidelines.
0: Really, everything I've talked about so far is just as relevant to autism as it is to ADHD or learning disabilities or anything else. Because, you know, when we look at these neurodevelopmental or brain-based disorders in children, they all exist along a spectrum. Autism is just more on the significant, you know, I don't want to say severe, but the more problematic end of the spectrum. But honestly, there's not a whole lot of difference sometimes between a child diagnosed with high-functioning autism and a child diagnosed with severe ADHD. So this is where the labels just kind of become somewhat meaningless. And we need to look at what's going on with the child. What I will say specific to children with autism, we know from the research that many of these children have significant underlying physiological health problems that must be identified and addressed. So I'm talking about significant gastrointestinal issues, things like You know, diarrhea, constipation, reflux, poor digestion, pain, bloating, all of those kinds of issues. So, so we see a lot of GI issues. These children are also more prone to things like seizures, migraines, these kinds of neurologically based pain issues. We see autoimmune issues, thyroid issues at a greater level in children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. And this is really important for parents to understand. Because autism, to me, is not simply a mental health diagnosis. Autism, if a child truly is on the autism spectrum, truly has autism, this is a full-body systemic issue. And we need to be identifying not just doing evaluation for the purpose of diagnosing the autism, but evaluation for the purpose of looking at the physiology to determine what needs to happen there to support this child's development, getting back on a more healthy and appropriate track. And what I see a lot of parents when their child gets diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, particularly if it's at a young age or it's more moderate to severe with their functioning or with their delays, they get channeled into these behavioral therapies and they get told this is what you need to do. Well, we could do a whole nother episode on the problems with the behavior therapy that's done and how traumatizing that is for many of these children and how the research shows that it's not very effective in the long run. But what no one talks about or what very few people talk about for these children is you can do all of the behavioral therapy in the world. You can do all of the learning-based therapies in the world. But if you are not addressing the underlying health and physical issues, you are not going to get very far. And so it's really important for parents who have children, particularly with that whole spectrum of diagnoses, to be digging deeper and working with a practitioner who can look at that whole view. Because once you clean up a child's gut and get their digestive system working better, you address pain issues for them, you, you know make sure that their hormones are properly balanced, once you get those things in place, guess what? Suddenly their functioning improves quite significantly and... All the other therapies that may benefit them are going to be more effective now because we have addressed those physiological problems. So I think those are some things in particular that that parents of children with autism need to be aware of.
1: As you may know, every year I host an end of the year mental health summit. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm excited to announce we will be making this a virtual summit December 3rd through 6th. So, if you've always wanted to attend but couldn't due to flights or other commitments, now is the time. In this summit, you will learn simple, practical, and scientific strategies to help you clean up your mental mess and live your healthiest and happiest life. This summit will also include guest speakers such as Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Will Cole, Dr. Nicole Para, Dr. Henry Cloud, and celebrity Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. We will have sessions on how to overcome trauma, what to eat and do for optimal brain health, how to deal with toxic words and people, how to set boundaries, how to use my five steps to detox your brain, and so much more. We will also be offering CMEs and CEUs. Registration is now open and we are offering a special early bird discount just till October 15. Your registration includes access to all sessions, discounts on online products, recordings of all sessions after the event and special downloads and workbooks. Register now at drleafconference.com. The link and more details will be in the show notes. I'm so glad you addressed that. And, I, and, and because there's such a, it's quite new, the research on the enteric nervous system and the whole, the relationship to autism. And I know back in the 80s, they sort of would work around that area, but that's become very significant now. And the other piece of the puzzle that I always, when I used to work with autism is a lot of, you know, language therapy is very important is to yep. be able to actually spend the time as opposed to the behavioral therapies to actually spend okay. the time with language therapy. And that is very, 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 very good therapy for, for autistic kids and it, that goes to the whole socialization and everything but they need help in terms of communication so the right. communication and language side is, is a vital component and,
0: and the relationship component of that yes and,
1: that comes and in with communication this is a piece
0: mm-hmm. of where what we're really seeing is that the relationship-based treatment of autism which includes developmentally appropriate progression of communication development those are Far better and more effective choices in the long run than, than strict, you know, ABA behavioral based therapy. And, you know, as I said, that's all that's we could have a whole another
1: conversation about that. But I think it's something parents need to be aware of. Touch on that a little bit because what you've stressed and I totally agree with you, the approach to autism should be language, communication, relationship yes. based. And we've got to deal with those physical. They are okay. vital because there's definitely a link. They're seeing it all the time. The hypersensitivity, the brain being so much more sensitive to everything that sort of hypersensitivity syndrome throughout the whole body. And when that's addressed, it definitely takes the functionality to a whole new level. And yes. you address that with language and communication, you have a very different picture. But there is, just, just talk for a moment, just if you can. I know it's a huge issue, but I'm so glad you raised it. And it's brilliant about the behavioral issues because touch on that for just a few minutes.
0: That's right. Well, you know, the, the, for a long time, the, the theory or the way that the field has looked at autism is a behavioral disorder. And we have all these behavioral characteristics that we use to diagnose it. I'm here to say autism is not a behavioral disorder. Autism is a profound neurologically and physiologically, it's a whole body, brain and body disorder that causes a child's development to go markedly off course at some point in their early development. It is not a behavioral disorder. The behaviors are merely symptoms of what is really going on. So when we put children in this behavior-based therapy where we basically reward and punish them into managing their behaviors, into saying words, we reward and punish them into sitting in a chair, into saying hello to people, whatever it may be. At best, we get this sort of oddly compliant and very stilted and unnatural you know child who sort of is able to communicate but not really communicate isn't able to develop true friendships true relationships still has a lot of profound challenges because we have addressed the wrong thing when you're just intervening at the level of behavior you have missed the mark and i'm not saying that we don't sometimes need targeted interventions to address specific behaviors especially if there are safety or those kinds of concerns. However, that should never be the cornerstone of a child's treatment. Never, ever. And in fact, the research does not bear out that children with autism who have gone through this intensive behavioral intervention do any better when they reach adulthood. And that is a really important thing. parents to understand, especially when you consider the amount of time and money that parents are pouring into these behavioral approaches, your child is not likely to have any better outcome in the long term than children who never received any treatment. And that's really important for them to understand. And instead, what you want to focus your time, money, energy, and efforts on are these other things we're talking about that the research shows actually get to the root of these issues and support true developmental progress, communication, relationship-based approaches, getting the medical problems taken care of, addressing the nutritional components. These are the pieces that truly do make a difference and honestly that feel a whole lot better to families because they say, well, this feels right to us this reduces our stress this we're making progress with so just just some important things especially again for families who are dealing with children on the spectrum some important paradigm shifts or or some new ways of thinking about this that they
1: may not have been exposed to Brilliantly said Thank you so much For stressing that You know It's almost like We're going back To how they always Work with autism In the 50s And 60s And 70s We kind of And then it changed In the Mm -hmm. mid 80s And 90s To this more Behavioral approach And we see From the research That it is not working And that's very I I want to undergird That and stress That the scientific research Shows that the Behavioral approaches Are not working The good old fashioned Language, communication Relational And nutritional And then this extra Component that they know Which is more recent research Research, which is addressing the phys- physiological, that's much right. if, if a bit, huge focus on the gut, that is fairly new research, but it is showing massive improvement and changes. So it's yeah. very hopeful because it actually makes the management of autism in the home a much more, as you said so beautifully, instinctively correct because that's the behavioral right. stuff, and there's also studies, Nicole, I'm sure you I know you're aware of them, of showing the emotional trauma that the children go through. That's right. And that often doesn't manifest until a certain trigger points in their life when they're old. And there's tremendous, so they develop tremendous emotional problems and very often have to land up and then they get medicated for, you know, Mm -hmm. for for depression and bipolar when they don't have those either. Those are also just labels. So that's something that we need to really address, which is, well, thank you for, that's brilliant. I I love that. There's so many questions I still want to ask you. Let's talk about children that are slightly, that are feeling anxiety and stress. It's such a lot at the moment, especially with, you know, COVID and just also the pressure at school. And a lot of it you've addressed already, you know, you don't let a child run around, you feed them in. Correctly, you put right. the pressure on to do math at eight in the morning when they put us all That is going to increase child's anxiety and stress. But
0: anxiety is a sign of the times, I think, that we're living in for both adults and for children. And unfortunately, what we've seen is every year that goes by, and the American Psychological Association puts out an analysis on an annual basis. I think it's annual, it may be every other year, but I think it's every year, Looking at called Stress in America. And looking at these markers of stress and anxiety, and and one of the elements they look at is stress and anxiety level in children and adolescents and young adults. And what we're seeing is with every year, this profound increase in the number of children, the number of teens who are experiencing just really significant levels of anxiety. And again, we can go back to so many of the things that we've talked about, whether it's you know, unsupportive, inappropriate school kinds of situations, to the stress levels of parents and families and not spending time together and prioritizing children's needs, to academic pressures with college, to financial pressures, to peer pressure, to the issues with social media, growing up in a 24/7 internet connected world that you
1: know people in our generation we didn't have to deal with that but so in a perpetual summer perpetual cycle of activity
0: that's right so all of these pieces so as parents we need to recognize that the environment right now that we're raising children in is such that anxiety is a much more prevalent problem that we need to be aware of and that we need to be taking steps to support these issues in our children to helping them become more emotionally resilient, to helping them take care of their brains and bodies in a way that keeps anxiety at an appropriate level, how they're eating, how they're sleeping, how they're moving, all of these pieces, especially as they get into those teen years and start to make some of those decisions for themselves, making sure that we are talking about these issues as a family that we're modeling as parents healthy coping right that our coping strategies aren't just a glass of wine and you know zoning out in front of Netflix for 5 hours every night because we're stressed about our job or you know our home life or whatever that we're modeling good healthy coping skills and that we are providing our children with resources to help learn those skills if that's what's needed whether that's accessing some therapy with a therapist who can help them learn, you know, and even just a few sessions, some helpful breathing strategies, how to use things like EFT, tapping, uh, how to use mindfulness and meditation. There's more resources online now than ever before for those things. So making sure that we're aware of those and using them for ourselves and modeling that and then helping our children learn those things so that they can become resilient. So they can realize that anxiety is a normal part of living a healthy life. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with us, but it does mean that we need to learn how to manage manage it, how to live with it in healthy ways, how to embrace it, how to deal with it. So that, that's my general spiel on anxiety. No,
1: I agree with you totally. You're, saying, you're speaking to the choir here. That is just brilliant. The way you've summarized it, we've got to see it. I love it that you've stressed as well that anxiety is a normal part of life. It doesn't mean that you're ill because there's the fear attached. These kids are picking this up. It's the first generation of children that are being told. A classic example, a friend of mine went and gave a lecture recently and it was actually a, a couple of years back. But the point of this thing was that they were talking about mind and mental health and so on. And the kid's immediate reaction was, oh, you just get a drug. So it's the first generation that is growing up thinking that the emotions, I feel there's something wrong with my emotions. Meanwhile, emotions, the good and the bad are all part of our new, normal human That's experience. Right. And anxiety is one of those. And we've got to manage it. And kids are not having time to sit and just think. Just sit outside in the sun and do nothing. They're That's always right. on their phone, always doing something. Right. So as a, the most simple thing we could tell a parent to do to reduce anxiety is to let your child do nothing. And you, I know right. you have an article about it's good for your children to be bored. And So you so talk about how, how people can find out more about you. And you've got some great resources. I've got your website pulled up. You've got some great resources and blogs and so on.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I've got, uh, gosh, hundreds of articles and videos and things at this point. Yeah. So drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com is my website. And I've got lots of things there for parents and and for professionals who are interested in these things. There's articles, there's videos, there's handouts, lots of things there. I also have a book written several years ago now for parents called Life Will Get Better, which is specifically for parents giving specific strategies in these areas that we've discussed about how you can start implementing these things in your family and with your child. And then I have a Better Behavior Naturally online membership option for parents who are interested in, you know, delving into these pieces, taking small steps in these areas, you know, and it's, it, it's self-paced. You can do it as it's, it's relevant for you, but that's also an option. It's a way that I'm able to work with more families and help them with these things than just what I'm able to do in the clinic because obviously I'm limited You know, here at my clinic with how many families I can see. So lots of online opportunities. I, I encourage people to join me on the website, on YouTube, on... Facebook, on Instagram, all those great places.
1: Wonderful. We'll have all those links in the show notes that people can get hold of you. So thank you so much for your time and your invaluable advice. It's been amazing, wonderful and important discussion. So I just want to thank you so much. We need to have more discussions. There's a lot of topics that we can still discuss in this area. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me and for the great conversation.
1: No, it's been amazing. Thank you so much.